greetings, brethren. It certainly is a wonderful time of the year as we observe God's Feast of Tabernacles, a time to celebrate and rejoice in the plan that God has for us, the destiny that we share all together as God's people. In the book of Leviticus, in Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 39, we read the instruction regarding this day. It says, also, this is verse 39, Leviticus chapter 23, also on the 15th day of the seventh month, When you have gathered in the fruit of the land, you shall keep the feast of the Lord for seven days. So this is God's feast. It's the feast of the Lord. On the first day, there should be a Sabbath rest. And on the eighth day, a Sabbath rest. You shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of the beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, the boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. Today I'd like to kind of go back and look at a bigger picture that has to do with the Feast of Tabernacles regarding Jesus Christ, our King, our soon coming King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Let's notice in the book of John, leading into the time of Christ's sacrifice and crucifixion, we read in John chapter 12, events that preceded, we find here in verse 1 of John 12, just six days before the Passover. Verse 1, it says, Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. So Christ came into the community, where Lazarus was. It tells us here then, verse 2, there they made him a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. And when Jesus Christ resurrected Lazarus back to life, a physical life, not spiritual at this point in his existence, it brought a tremendous attention to his ministry. We read on in this chapter, notice in verse 9, it says, Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. This incredible and remarkable event drew attention from those who heard of it. They wanted to see not only Jesus Christ, but they also wanted to see for themselves with their own eyes, Lazarus. Now we know that this really upset the religious order and the hierarchy at that time within the Jewish community. And so it tells us the priests plotted to put Lazarus to death. They were very upset with Christ, but they also plotted to put this man whom Jesus Christ had resurrected from the dead and brought back to life, they wanted to kill him. Because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. They departed from following these men, and in their frustration and anger, literally murder was in their heart. We find in verse 12, The next day a great multitude that had come to the feast, and we're talking of coming into Jerusalem for the spring festivals, the Passover, the Days of Leavened Bread, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. They came in much more than perhaps normal because of this. They took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out. So here is Jesus Christ, our coming King and Lord of Lords, who at this time was had come literally to be our Savior, to die for our sins. They came out and recognized because the Jews expected a king. They recognized him and praised him. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The king of Israel. Then Jesus who had found a young donkey sat on it as it is written. So we find here a prophecy that's being fulfilled that you can turn back into the word of God and find that predicted this event. 
And it's really a contradictory type of concept that Jesus Christ, King of kings, Lord of lords, would come riding on a donkey, a symbol of, of humility, not a stallion, not some type of you know, very impressive horse, a horse of, of strength and power, a horse of war. But Jesus Christ came riding on a donkey. It says, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey colt. So they had come to praise Christ. We find that this took place, verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him, and that he had done these things, or they had done these things to him. So then at that time, not at this time, but later, after the resurrection and glorification of Jesus Christ, they came to understand and realize what was taking place. Now, what was the symbol and what was involved here that this event was prophesied and that it took place? Well, if we go to the book of Revelation, we find, as the Bible, as it often does, brethren, explains itself. And we really do not have to speculate. It tells us in Revelation chapter 7, and in, starting here in verse 9, and it's speaking of the 144,000, It says, after these things I looked, in verse 9, and behold, a great multitude, which no one can number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne. So this is looking forward into time, events yet to take place, but they're before the throne of the Lamb, or before the Lamb, clothed with white robes. But clothed with white robes, and before the throne, and before the Lamb of God, says, with branches in their hands. Now, these branches were palm branches. The same as we read in the book of John, and also that the scripture tells us of in the book of Leviticus. Branches were a symbol. These palm branches were a symbol of rejoicing. Notice verse 10 and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God. They were rejoicing God's salvation. The salvation that then is given and extended to us. That through Him, we have the promise of life. So salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now that salvation, of course, is extended to us through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. So I'd like to go back, brethren, and perhaps give somewhat of an overview. We, we look at these events and we rejoice in them, but sometimes we don't stop and look at a bigger perspective, that is the perspective of God having planned out the events that we today celebrate, that we have celebrated living uh, coming into this year's Feast of Tabernacles. That, are, that is the other holy days that we have kept. In the scripture, we find in several occasions, both in the book of Revelation and also in First Peter, that Jesus was foreordained before the foundation of the world as the Lamb of God. So that God and the personage of God that became the Son of God, planned in advance. The Bible tells us it was before the foundations of the world. So very clearly, at some point prior to the recreation of this earth, and it is not specific, those two personages of God's family, the two, they were God's family, they determined and laid out a plan and then they begin, they put it in motion. You can read in Revelation chapter 13. It speaks here just briefly, and I'll read it just taking out of context the one statement that it says regarding the book of life, the latter part of chapter, thir- or chapter 13 of Revelation, verse 8. 
says, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Then you'll read in 1 Peter, it, the language here very plainly tells us it was before. And so, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, says, He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, speaking of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. And so God had planned ahead, and they put together a plan. And that was that Jesus Christ would become our Redeemer, our Savior. So God who created all things, that is Jesus Christ, through whom they were created, literally remade the earth, made it habitable for man as God intended he be in this purpose and plan. He then shaped Adam, made him in his image, and then formed from the rib of Adam and created Eve. I was interested to stop and think that when he created Eve, and I'm sure it was a part of his overall thought, that he realized that as Jesus, who became at the time of birth the Son of God, he was not previously the Son of God. And nor prior to this point was the Father his Father, that is, at the time of his human birth. At that point in time, that relationship was established. And we might also look at it, and it it's not a major point. Perhaps it was at the time when literally Mary was begotten. But she was begotten of the Father. So at that time when Jesus created Eve, he knew that his existence, his very being, would be for nine months in the womb of his creation. We read in the book of Luke, in Luke chapter 1, as these events are revealed through whom Jesus Christ worked and the Father worked, we read of the event in Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to the city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. Now, it's interesting in the scripture and many people recognize the two genealogies in the scripture that extend from the time of Eve through her child Seth through to Abraham and David on to this time and that is from David, we have two lineages that the Bible gives us in detail. One is that of Mary, and the other is of Joseph. One represents the legal title to the male lineage of David. The other represents the physical lineage because Jesus Christ was born of Mary. But it was of the flesh, or by the promise of the flesh, of the seed of David. And we'll see that as we move forward. So we have, in the book of Matthew, and then in the book of Luke, both lineages. You might say, well, why are both preserved? Why has God preserved the very lineage of the Son of God from the time of Adam and Eve? Well, it's to give us the physical evidence that he indeed was born of this flesh. And yet he was also born of his father, and he was a first begotten in that manner and born in that manner, which sets a pattern for us, brethren, to understand our destiny, what God is doing. And so we find here, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. So Joseph on the male side was the legal heir of that throne, that is the throne of David. And you might say, well, he was not born of Joseph. And he was not. But Joseph adopted him into, he became a part of the family. And as we know from God's word in that time and that culture, that when you were adopted into a family, you became heir within that family. You know in the book of Romans that we find the translation, 
says we are adopted sons. Mr. Armstrong, Mr. Meredith, and actually if you read the scholars and look at the language, the right translation of that passage is that we became sons of God. And the reason for that is because a son that is adopted into the family had all the legal rights of a natural son. And so Jesus, being a part of the family of Joseph, inherited the legal right to the throne of David. Being also of the physical lineage of David, that is through Mary, he fulfilled the physical requirement that he was of David's flesh. So let's notice here, it says, To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. We certainly know today in our time that the Catholic Church and and many religions have elevated Mary beyond what God intended. But at the same time, let's not, in a sense, react in a negative way and that we do not recognize the tremendous blessing in what God says of this young lady who became the mother of Jesus Christ, that she was highly favored and that she was blessed among women and that we honor her, we respect what God had done. We respect that here this young lady was of such character and such a person that God used her and she literally was. She physically, her womb, Help our Lord and Savior. So let's keep that in perspective in a right way, not being in some way tainted by this society and this world that does not understand what God was doing. When she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. She was given instruction that he was to be called Jesus. In the Hebrew language, that's Joshua, and it means Savior. That he was to be called Savior. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Now clearly, David was not his father in the sense of a begettal. But in terms of the throne, that throne was the throne of David. And as we look later into God's word, we'll have a little better understanding of this perspective. Verse 33, And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. Now, this particular phrase is also found in the book of Acts regarding when God's Spirit came upon his servants. And so something that came upon her And it doesn't give us more detail than that particular uh, phrase. And it is a phrase in the Greek language. It's not one word. It's a combination of words. But it simply means what it says. It came upon her, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also, that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Literally, she bore... In her womb, the very son of God Almighty. Now that was God's plan. This was something that before God created this earth and renewed its face and he created Adam and Eve, that this was foreordained. And of course, Jesus Christ, the word of God, literally revealed in many prophecies the events that would take place of his coming as our Lord and Savior. Let's notice going to the book of Acts because it gives us a little bit of of detail that sometimes people have difficulty knowing how to assimilate. 
in the world, in the Catholic Church. They explain the events that took place because it's very difficult for them to do so based on the doctrine they teach. They believe it was through the Immaculate Conception. But the Immaculate Conception literally did not have to do with the birth of Christ in Mary, through Mary. Many Catholics do not understand the doctrine. You can look it up or do a bit of research. You'll find that the doctrine was about Mary's birth, that her conception was without sin, that it was an immaculate conception. The difficulty they have doctrinally is the concept of original sin. But that concept is false. It's based on error. And the Bible very specifically tells us that the sin of the Father is not the responsibility of the Son. Nor is the Son going to somehow place upon his Father the responsibility of his conduct as an adult. So the concept of the original sin is based on a premise that is not found in God's Word, that the Bible specifically addresses, and it causes confusion. In the book of Acts, we find very specifically of this topic that Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, addressed it. He says, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you. This is in Acts chapter 2, verse 29. Acts chapter 2, verse 29. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to, to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, David was king, but by God's inspiration, he also prophesied. It says, being a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. To fulfill this, the Bible reveals to us, gives us the lineage of Mary because she was the fruit. She was the seed of David. She was of his flesh. Jesus Christ was not of the flesh, so to speak, of Joseph. He was begotten by his Father in heaven. Even as we are, brethren, when hands are laid upon us at the giving of the Holy Spirit following baptism. It says, He foreseeing this, notice verse 31, and you can go back in the book of Psalms and read these prophecies. You'll find references either here in your margin, if you have marginal references, or you can look them up. They're very easily found with the various Bible tools that are available. It says, He, that is David, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. And God raised him prior to those physical events taking place in a very natural way, that is, within three days and three nights, that period of time, Christ was resurrected. And physically, after that, his body would, just a normal process, the physical process, would begin then to break down in a way that the Jews identified and the Scripture identifies as corruption. In verse 32, it says, This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. As you read through this passage, you realize this had a tremendous impact on those that were drawn. Perhaps many of them had been followers of Christ. They'd come together to hear the disciples of Jesus Christ, who now were given the responsibility of being apostles, that is, one sent forth. And so we find that they asked a question when they heard and understood their responsibility and what had transpired. Verse 37, When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? They accepted their responsibility in that Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, had been crucified. That he'd been put to death. It's a responsibility we accept at the time of baptism, not with others, but for ourselves. 
We acknowledge that Jesus Christ had to die for our sins, our specific sins. And it's very important, brother, and we see that, we understand that, and we accept that. That we do not look and think, well, I'm a part of all these people who sin. It's our sins. It's what we have done. And Peter told them, they wanted, what do we do? Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And he shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise, see, God's made a promise. The promise is to you and to your children. That promise to us, brethren, is based on his plan, his purpose for mankind. And to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words. There were many things he said, but you know, God intended and he crafted his word in such a way that those things that are needful for us for life eternal are given to us. In fact, you can read that in God's word that all the things we need are found in this book. That was God's intention. It was crafted in such a manner that we would have everything that we need for that purpose. It says, For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So as we keep God's Feast of Tabernacles, it's very important for us to also understand God has a plan. And the days we celebrate now, they're a time of rejoicing, but they're also a time when it's very important we put them in perspective to what God is doing. And we understand that God is doing it, brethren. It helps us to be encouraged, to understand a promise has been given, and it strengthens our faith. We need faith in God. We need, brethren, to put our lives in his hands. And sometimes when we go through physical difficulty in life or we're getting older and this body begins to break down, which it's going to, and it's going to happen to everyone in this flesh, if you're five, six, seven years of age or you're 20, 30, 40, and those of us that are older, we know it. We see it happening. We realize God has a purpose. And it's not about this life. This life will serve God's purpose to lead to his ultimate purpose in our life, which is to be a part of his family, to be spiritual beings, to have and possess eternal life. That life is through Jesus Christ, our Savior and our coming King. So God, who created all things, planned this out. Now, God wants us to be assured of those promises. He wants us to know, brethren, that These things will happen. God also wants to understand that without his intervention, the man of and by himself would utterly destroy all things. That by our own human nature, our carnality, the greed and selfishness that is inherent within each of us, God allowed that we be good and evil. He allowed that Satan would influence us. But it's for his purpose that we would have to make a choice and it would be of our own free moral agency. And that it's not a choice we make once and move on. It's a choice we make every day, every moment of life, every time we're challenged. When we make that choice and we continually make that choice, not that we don't sometimes stumble and fall, but we get back up and we turn to God and we make that choice day after day after day. It becomes a part of our character. It becomes who we are through God's Holy Spirit, working in our lives and literally changing us. God's made a promise to us and revealed to us, if that did not happen, then all flesh would be destroyed. Notice in Matthew chapter 24. And please take note of why. It says, for the elect's sake. Matthew 24, verse 21 So why does God intervene? Why does he stop what would take place? For those that he made promises to. Now, that includes a large company of people. Those who served him, Old Testament, New Testament, 
I'll not take the time, but you can go into the book of Hebrews in chapter 11 and read of those who are faithful to God. And we know there are many, many others besides those that are mentioned and put forth as examples for us to follow. In Matthew 24, verse 21, speaking of the very end time, the latter days, Christ said, For then there would be great tribulation, such as not has not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, it's not just for this present time, but for the elect of God, through history, God's plan to be carried out, God's going to intervene. That intervention is a time we've celebrated leading into the Feast of Tabernacles, the Day of Trumpets, and then the putting away of Satan to begin a time of promise, that is the promised millennium, the rest of God. And so it tells us here, but for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. And so Jesus Christ and the Father will carry out their plan. And it's very important to us that God wants us to have an assurance of the promises he made. And he wants us to understand and, and be encouraged by what lies ahead. So I'd like to go forth and first show you God's attitude in that regard, that he really wants us to have an assurance of the promises. And then, brother, we'll look at the fact that God who redeems us from utter destruction is going to redeem his people and he will redeem us. So he is our redeemer, our savior. And through him, we will have salvation. And so some of the things that we'll cover, we look forward to in celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. The entire festival and all of God's plan is given to us and revealed to us, brethren, so that we will be encouraged, that we will be a people of faith, that we would put our trust in the Lord. In Hebrews chapter 6, it speaks of the promise, that is the promise God made to Abraham. In chapter 6 and verse 13, it shows the spirit and heart that God had. And he wants us to have in this relationship, uh, having been called at this time for salvation. It says, for when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. Now, you know, men swear because there's a level of distrust. And so you look back his, in history to assure trust, to make sure that a man had clearly given his word. It was clarified by taking an oath. Today we do that. We don't trust the words of others. We put it into a written document so there can be no denial. And then quite often we have to be very careful that we read the document, that it has no exceptions or some type of clause that in somehow or some manner could change the understood agreement. And so we have attorneys today to make sure that is not true, that the language is such that it's very clear and the intent of it is clear. And if there is to be a clause, which is not wrong as long as it's understood, but God swore an oath wasn't necessary, not from a human perspective. He's our creator. It's God. But he swore an oath wise, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, why did God do this? Thus God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. God wants us to stand firm and to know without doubt, brethren, that we can fully put our heart, our entire being, into the promises that he's given to us. That by two immutable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, 
we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. So God wants us to have strength in this. He wants us, because of the Feast of Tabernacles, because of the Passover, the Days of Eleven Bread, the Day of Pentecost, the Day of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Tabernacles, and the Last Great, all of those days, brethren, combined, that reveal to us His plan and purpose. He wants us to be lifted and strengthened with faith. That we be a people of faith and trust in God. It says, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil. Because the evidence of that is Jesus Christ, who was resurrected. But today, brethren, is the high priest of God, who behind the veil intercedes for our sins, who goes to his Father, and we are forgiven. Where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Not of a physical order, but an order of a spiritual priesthood, Jesus Christ being Melchizedek. So God wants us to be assured, brethren, of the promises he's given. And let's notice the concept in terms of the scripture and the prophecy, how Christ's sacrifice, the things he did, linked together to the promises given. First, those promises were given to the children of Israel, to the very physical children of the flesh and blood of Abraham. And brother, we know in that example that we, through God's Spirit, no matter our race, no matter our heritage, that we be can become the seed of Abraham, that we can become the children of Israel. In fact, today the church of God is called the Israel of God. And so when we see the one, we understand what God is doing, but brethren, also understand the parallel of what is taking place in our present life. God's called us out. He's given us an opportunity to be his people. And when you look at what God says of that relationship, it's that is of physical Israel, it's really very, very informative and helps us to think about and to understand how our present relationship with God, it needs to have vision and foresight. We need to allow these days and the promises of them to have a continuing impact in our life. So let's notice this first starting in Isaiah chapter 49 because it goes back to God's purpose and his plan. In Isaiah 49, we find here at the time And we'll look at a couple of passages that speak of Israel's redemption, when God's going to bring them out of captivity. And this is often spoken of in the book of Isaiah and Ezekiel. God's going to bring the children of Israel who are going to go into captivity. It's not happened yet, but it is going to happen. And when it happens, in a way, it should be also a a realization to us of God's promise. Maybe through a very difficult and heartbreaking period of time, no one wants to see anyone suffer. But brethren, suffering sometimes fulfills purpose in life. You know, as you grow older, and I'm growing older, there's times I find I have pain and suffer certain things. But I also know that God has purpose in that, that he's working in my life. As I'm growing older, I come to sort of feel God's polishing me, and he's buffing me. But I know that that process is one that at times is painful. But at the very same time, brethren, it holds great promise. In Isaiah chapter 49 and verse 13, it speaks of a time of rejoicing, a time that we today, we are to rejoice. It says, sing, O heavens, be joyful, O earth, And break out in singing, O mountains. For the Lord has comforted his people. And will have mercy on his afflicted. But Zion Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. And my God has forgotten me. Says, Can a woman forget her nursing child? And not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget. 
yet I will not forget you. Now, why? Notice what it says. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. You know, Thomas doubted the resurrected Christ. And what did he do? Jesus put on his palms. said, put your fingers here in my wounds. And we know that when that happened, Thomas was cut to the heart. And he knew this was his Lord and Savior. God's saying this in terms of prophecy to the children of Israel. And brethren, by extension, to each of us. But he's saying it to them that the promise is given to them. The physical promise that they would be a people and that God will fulfill his word to Abraham. Even at a physical level. Part of his crucifixion, brethren, and part of what he went through was intended to fulfill and to come to this point in his plan. We read in Jeremiah chapter 32. Jeremiah chapter 32. Let's understand what God's heart is in regard to this. Verse 37. Because it, again, it's talking of the nation, the physical people of Israel that God's going to bring together. Verse 37. It says, Behold, I will gather them out of all countries where I have driven them in my anger, in my fury and in great wrath. I will bring them back to this place, and I will cause them to dwell safely. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. And this is speaking of God literally bringing back. Now, the example here, the type, the original type, had to do with the children of Israel being taken to Babylon. And Judah was taken there. Israel to Assyria. They were taken into captivity. God's saying to them through his servant, you're going to be brought back. But as we read on, we realize by the promises made here, speaking not of that time, but rather looking to the future, the time that lies just ahead after the children of Israel today go into captivity, God's going to bring them back. But that's also, brethren, at the time the millennial reign of Jesus Christ starts as King of kings and Lord of lords. It says, They shall be my people, and I will be their God. Then I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever, for the good of them and their children after them. And so we know through the millennium, God's going to literally... Bless this earth. There's going to be a tremendous healing of all things. A restoration. And children will be born and and walk the streets and grow up. And salvation will be extended to all. We also know following that, God's going to go back and he's going to take all of these, those that have lived in this time and give them that same opportunity to live life, to enjoy the blessings. Brother, we will see that, but not as physical beings. If we're faithful to God, we are the children of Israel spiritually. But as we look forward, we're going to have a part in it. It's going to be an incredible blessing. It's something we can truly look forward to. It's a physical thing, but even more importantly, it leads to the fulfillment of what the two personages prior to Christ's sacrifice and his human and and birth of his father, where he became the son of God, all the way back that God had foreordained a plan. So let's read on here. Let's see what it reveals to us. It says, Then I will give them one heart in one way, that they may fear me forever, for the good of them and their children forever. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them, that I will not turn away from doing them good. You realize that covenant is a covenant you have with God? It's talking about the new covenant. And God's describing an aspect of it here. God's made a covenant with you as you were baptized and accepted Jesus Christ that God would not turn away from doing good for you. And we read that in the New Testament. All things work together for good for those who love God. Even our trials and difficulties 
therefore good. That's the Word of God. That's a promise given to us. But I will put my fear in their hearts. And I hope, brother, you understand God's doing that in our lives. And we're going to see some of the things that lie ahead. We're going to be moved by them. And they cause fear in us in an awesome way. That is, in respect and, and looking to God in awe. So that they will not depart from me. Yes, I will rejoice over them to do, the, to do them good. And I will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. What a powerful statement. The very Creator God, the Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our Redeemer, would do this with all his heart and with all his soul. For thus says the Lord, Just as I have brought all this great calamity on this people, so I will bring on them all the good that I have promised them. That's an interesting perspective because as we see the calamity come, we also, brethren, have an assurance. See, we're, we're going to see prophecy fulfilled. We're going to see a nation, not just America, but we're going to see the children of Israel around the world in a way that humanly could not be totally explained. Because it's not just a result of, in a, in a sense of, uh, let's say, human action. It's also God's hand. Mr. Ar- Meredith has often brought out, God says he will punish us. Now, some of the things that will happen will surely be because of our own deeds. But because of those deeds, God's also going to correct and he's going to punish. That punishment is going to make it clear and we see that. Please understand, when we see those things, we also have an assurance of what's going to follow. God's made a promise of one. We are, in fact, seeing it begin to take place in various ways. We're going to see it intensify greatly. But at the same time, when that happens, we have an assurance of what is to follow. That's why the feast days we celebrate are such an incredible blessing. Because we'll know. We'll understand that we can teach others and we can be a witness to them. We can, through God's word and his promise, give them hope. And brethren, as you examine the scriptures, you know that that hope will be real. That they will turn to God. Read through the book of Lamentations and look at the young man who sets his heart in the Lord. Because he has no other hope. The reason he will do that is because of the work that we do. Because of the witness that God carries out through his servants. And because he'll begin to look and understand there's a promise. And he's a part of that. In Jeremiah chapter 24. Jeremiah 24 verse 6. Again, it brings the same picture out. For I will set my eyes on them for good. And I will bring them back to this land. I will build them and not pull them down. And I will plant them and not pluck them up. Then I will give them a heart. God says he's doing this with all his heart. We're going to become his people. God says then I will give them a heart to know me. That's the same statement that we read regarding the new covenant in Hebrews. That's what God's doing in our lives. And so when we see these things, we look for them and we look ahead. We need to understand the bigger picture because it touches us. It touches every one of us that have God's spirit. That God's working in our life. That he's giving us a heart to know me. That I am the Lord and they shall be my people and I will be their God. For they shall return to me. You know, this is what God wants of us, brethren, through the feast. If you want to know what God's purpose is and the inspiration of these days, that they would return to me with their whole heart. That we would turn to God with our being, with our entire being, and be lifted up in a very positive way. Because it really is. It's encouragement and vision that strengthens anyone who struggles. And when you capture that and you grab hold of it, it becomes a part of you. That's what makes for success. 
That's what makes for an individual who's an overcomer, who changes their life, and who grabs hold of something. That's true even physically, but it's even more so when we see God's Word. It's necessary in our spiritual life. So God wants us to return to Him. There's a process we're going through. It's difficult sometimes in this world. We can easily get distracted. We can easily lose sight. So God, every year, brethren, we go through God's holy days. And so what God's doing with physical Israel, please understand, it's a spiritual pattern, a pattern that also is spiritually true, that God is working out in our lives. So they would return to me with their whole heart. So God will redeem his people. And a beautiful part of what lies ahead is that, brethren, we will have a part in this. The book of Revelation tells us in chapter 20 that God is going to literally resurrect His servants and that we will reign with Him. Notice Revelation chapter 20. I'll not read all of it. But when when John is given a vision now of this time, that is the beginning of the millennium, he starts the very first thing he says. I saw thrones and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Now, who sits on these thrones? Those who God has resurrected. Those who have part in the first resurrection. Last part of verse 4, they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Verse 6, blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So the, the first thing that takes place and that we will be doing is we will be priests of God. We read in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 10 that we will be kings and priests. Notice this. Because God doesn't separate those offices. In this world we do. We separate church and state. God does not. He's our king. He's our Lord. He's our master. He's our redeemer. He's our savior. We worship him. The offices are not separated. Nor will God do so. We'll be kings and priests. Notice Revelation 5.10. It shows that out of every language and every tongue and every tribe, you know, we, we break down people in different ways. God says, it doesn't make any difference. Out of all of those that represent the family of mankind, God's going to make kings and priests to our God. And he's doing that. He's working in our lives. He's preparing us. He's made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. And so let's take a note of some of the things the Bible says regarding that future responsibility. In Isaiah chapter 58, in verse 9, it's talking here of the kind of fast that God would accept. And you know, brethren, if somebody's really converted and turning to God, this is how they're going to fast. They're going to read these words. And they're trying to understand and put them into part of their heart. And every fast that we take, brethren, or time we fast, we really should look at what God says to us spiritually here. And we may fast for different reasons, but this is the spirit, this is the heart. This is the focus in which we should come before God. When we do this, God tells us here, starting in verse, well, it says verse 9, Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. So God will respond. If we read this, and we take it hard, and we really seek to follow it, God's going to respond to us. Whatever we fast for, he will hear. And he will respond. Verse 11, the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought and strengthen your bones. You shall be like a watered garden. So it speaks in verse, I didn't read it, verse 10 of how God's going to literally take our light and we'll, it says verse Well, let me read it. Verse 10, partway through the verse, it says, Then your light shall dawn in the darkness, and your darkness shall be as the noonday. 
God's suddenly going to use us, and we will be a light in a way that physically and humanly simply not possible. These statements do not make sense if we look at them physically. But through God's Spirit, we will become a light, and we will shine. And water will be a source of strength. Verse 12, those from among you shall build the old waste places and shall raise up the foundation of many generations. Those that we've influenced, and perhaps those also that are even our own flesh and blood, depending on time and life and the events that are fulfilled. But notice what it says of those that God uses in this way. And you should be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in, or paths. So God's going to work in our lives to be a part of what he's going to do. Let's notice when it talks of a breach that's going to take place. What is this breach? Isaiah chapter 30. Breach is literally the transgressions of the children of Israel that cut them off from God. But it speaks of a breach like it's a huge wall. It's like a dam. And God is very merciful and he's very patient, brethren. But there's a time when that iniquity, sin after sin, transgression after transgression, not only to move away from God's law, but to despise his law, to ridicule and despise anything related to the scripture or to God's word. That is what's happening today. And so this is going to build up. You can read in Isaiah chapter 30, it says in verse 1, Woe to the rebellious children, children, says the Lord, who take counsel but not of me, and who devise plans but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. In this context, as God goes on and speaks of, their departure, that is the departure of his children from obeying him. We read in verse 13. It says, Therefore, this iniquity shall be to you. There's all these things they're doing. Notice, I'd like to read verse 12. I, I wanted to start here. It says, Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word, and trust in oppression and perversity, and rely on them. Therefore, this iniquity shall be to you like a breach. Just like a crack in a dam. It's got all this pressure behind it. It's all pent up, and it's going to burst. When a dam begins to burst, it's not just boom. It's usually a small trickle, and then you see a flow. You may have seen this at various times in movies or other events. And then... That pressure and that flow, all at once it gains acceleration, and when it does, then it, you know, the entire dam collapses. And we live in a time right now today in Israel, in the world we live in around us, not only Israel, but in the world, because it's also part of this world. But God looks upon his children, he's going to hold them accountable. We've been given this word. It's through Israel, this word was spread around the world. God's going to hold us accountable. And when this happens, like a breach ready to fall, a bulge in a high wall, whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant. He shall break it like the breaking of a potter's vessel. He goes on to describe, there will be pieces, not even shards you could use. Nothing. Now in this context, as God goes forward, then he speaks of his mercy and his graciousness. You know, it's in that context we read that God speaks of those who will repair this breach. Notice later in this chapter, Isaiah chapter 30, we read of the children of Israel. Verse 19, For the people shall dwell in Zion at Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will be very gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he will answer you. And though the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, even though you go through this and all these things are going to happen, yet your teachers will not be moved into a corner anymore. That is going to happen. We're going to be moved into a corner, and God's going to have to intervene, brethren, and he will. 
He's going to pour out his spirit. And the Bible specifically tells us of two men, two witnesses God will use. And this world would like to stop their mouths and would take their lives. But God's going to literally, and the instruction of the word is they're not going to have a choice. Anyone who seeks to do this, they will die. And it's going to stop until God's purpose and his plan is fulfilled. So even though God does pour out affliction upon them, it's going to change. It says, your eyes shall see your teachers. Your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way. This is how to walk. Walk in this path. And when you turn to the right hand, will people do that? Sure they will. Even in God's church, we strive for balance. You know, and, and it really is it's a very sad thing when someone falls off into a ditch left or right because we're all striving to get on track, to get in the middle of that track, that narrow path. And God's going to help through his service and his teachers. That is, each of us as kings and priests will teach and guide. We see someone going astray. We're not going to allow them to fall in the ditch. We're going to say, no, this is the way. We're going to move them just as you would a child who moves too close to danger doesn't mean they don't stray and you're not there to watch. You do. Because they have free moral agency and God wants them to exercise it. But he's going to give guidance and direction. We're going to be the servants who do that. We're going to be the kings and priests under Jesus Christ who have that opportunity, that incredible blessing. And that process, brother, we see how God deals with them. We also understand and have an insight into what he's doing in our life. In Isaiah chapter 51, just very quickly here, Isaiah 51 and verse 4, it says, Listen to me, my people, and give ear to me, O my nation. For law will proceed from me, and I will make my justice rest. As a light of the people, my righteousness is near. My salvation has gone forth, and my arms will judge the peoples. So God literally, as it speaks here, of what God promises ahead, that his salvation will go forth. Jesus Christ was born, and his name was Jesus, Savior, the Messiah, our Redeemer, the times coming, brethren, that that will happen, that will go forth. You can read in the book of Isaiah here just... A little bit later concerning Christ's sacrifice. In verse 11 of chapter 53 it says, He shall see the labor of his soul. And you see this is speaking of Christ, the Lamb of God. He's going to see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. God's arm of salvation. Something God had planned and is being carried out. Sometimes it's very helpful to see the bigger picture because it inspires us, it encourages us, it lifts us. It's interesting in the context of the promise of a child. God goes from a child is born. Let's notice this as we conclude. And it's really the picture, brethren, that I hope you take from this message. It's one of the more inspiring parts of God's word. It's something even this world reads and understands this Tremendous words and an incredible promise. But it starts with a child. It starts with something God planned and he laid out. And so we celebrate as we keep God's holy days. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And upon the government... And the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called. That's what people are going to call him. They're going to call him Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom... Jesus Christ, when he came, he was born of the flesh. His father begot him through the Holy Spirit. Very first begotten as a pattern, brethren, 
and also then in his resurrection, the firstborn. Now, people struggle with that doctrine. The Bible makes it very clear through Jesus Christ. Not something to struggle with. It's plainly revealed to us by the example of Christ. When Paul wrote of it, he said in Hebrews chapter 2, we see Jesus. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice. From that time forward, even forever. Incredible aspect of this. It's God's plan. It's his plan for us. Brethren, we simply have to submit ourselves. It is our destiny. It's why we were born. It's what God intends. And God tells us, and he assures us again, as he does in Hebrews, and he does by his actions throughout this book, and the record we have says, the zeal of the eternal of hosts will perform this. 